Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yo, what up, what up? What's going on? It's Frequency, producer extraordinaire. You're checking out the mixtape with my man Six Sense and Mick Boogie. Let's go for it. Yeah. It's your boy Success. Let's go. Uh, yeah, you know what it is. From the moment you come over the bridge, and I'ma show you some shit. Eight million roaming the strip, and I hope you ain't alone in the crib. Yeah, you better believe that. It's where you get seized for the cheddar and cheese at. Put your feet up if you put in your seat back. Even veterans see that. Brook Norm downtown to the west side. Oh yeah. In the world you heard, let's ride. If you HR. This is your host, Anthony Onesto, and we are excited to bring you another episode of our show where we are calling bullshit on HR and recruiting practices. I, you know, again, I say this every week because I do have exciting guests, but this one is, is personal to me, and I'll explain why. I, today we're, we're, we're calling bullshit on how companies motivate their people, and we're doing it with uh, Rich uh, Deck, who's from the Vega Factor, um, Rich, uh, I'm excited about this. Um, how you doing Me today? Me too. I'm doing great, Anthony. Great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit. You know, Rich and and his team uh, put out a, a book called Prime to Perform, um, which I read. I you know I commute into New York, into New York City. It takes me you know, hours to get in here. Uh, and so I have a lot of time on my hand and I read this book and I said, this is a game changer for me because for so long in HR, we've been trying to figure out how do we come to the table with metrics? How do we come to the table with research? Um, so tell us a little bit, Rich, about you. I'd love to hear your background. How'd you get into this? Of course, Vega Factor, Prime to Perform, just unload on us. Who are you and what, what do you do? Well, well, first off, Anthony, I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy, um, and for, for you folks out there, but my, my story begins um, at the Jersey Shore. You know, I uh, played basketball growing up, and I remember being on one team when I was 15 that had all this talent, all these expectations, and as a team, we grossly underperformed. Like, we won the majority of our games, but we should have been undefeated. And then months later, I was on a local travel team, and we were like the B team um, at the Jersey Shore, and, you know we fundamentally beat the A team, best team of the Jersey Shore. We went all over the state, became the best team in the state. And I was fascinated by how in one environment, I personally underperformed, the team underperformed. And on another team, literally months later, I personally outperformed and the team outperformed. So I was always fascinated by performance and how people perform differently in different environments. Studied engineering in college, spent the first bulk of my career I'm doing consulting work inside many organizations in the U.S. and internationally. The theme around implementing change in operational environments. Um, A lot of tactical, you know, tailored-type approaches for, for, you know, standardized, streamlined, simplified to improve things. And while we improved performance, I kept seeing inside all these organizations that there was something else that was behind performance and people thriving at work. And to me, it was around culture. Um, and I said to myself, there's going to be more leaders realizing the importance of culture 
to get people to improve performance and thrive at work. So I, I made a focus to, to switch to that. Um, did some executive coaching work, um, some leadership development work, because my thesis had been that's where the action was. That's what's really going to create high performance in organizations. Fundamentally, just saw all the traps that organizations were falling to around that and said, hey, there's got to be a better way. And about four years ago, I was looking for some, some, something bigger professionally, um, came across Prime Perform and our founders, Neil and Lindsay, and I'm like, this is the answer. This is what organizations are looking for. And this answer is why I thrived on one team back when I was 15 and underperformed on the other. I love it. And so you're, you're tackling something. So this idea of performance and culture. So for years, culture, you know, it, it's a hot topic now. It's almost, you know, in fact, a buzzword. And we all know what happens with buzz, buzzwords in, in human resources, right? But this idea of culture, yep. when, when you bring it up. So, so what, we're t- what we're talking about today, like at companies, and I've been in the HR business for 20 years. I, got, I always say I got my MBA in startup here in New York. Um, so we've always, you know, we've always had this theory and, and practice this idea of motivation. We're going to motivate you by putting this carrot out there. We're going to take this carrot. Yep. We're going to put it so far ahead of you that you're going to exceed our expectations. And we see it a lot in, in particularly in sales, right? In, 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 in incentive plans. Um, talk a little bit about, we want to call bullshit on that because that's, it's been around forever. It still exists Absolutely. today. Like if I went uh, into a company today and I went to the head of sales and said, hey, scrap all your, your incentive plans. The real idea here to motivate people is this idea of culture. They'll laugh me out of the door, right? They'll say, get, get the hell out of here. Incentive plans work here. We have proof of it. So what, what's happening with the, you know, we want to call bullshit on that. Um, what are your thoughts around that type of stuff, like, and I, how it applies to what you're seeing at the Vega Factor and, and with the book itself? Yeah, it's great, great um, theme. You know, so again, just to, to ground folks out there around our, you know, a bit of our research. So, you know, we, fundamentally, there's a why we do every anything, and those whys range from play, love of the activity, purpose, seeing the impact of it, potential, seeing a second order impact of it. And then there's emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia, things that the, are the extrinsic uh, motivating forces. And what we're raised in as, you know, whether it's you know, parenting, youth sports, academics, and, and the workplace is the carrot and stick approach that you mentioned, Anthony. Fundamentally, the research shows that when you use a carrot stick approach, you are destroying intrinsic motivation and replacing it with extrinsic motivation. So over time, people will underperform with the extrinsic motivators that praise and reward and the carrot and stick approaches foster. So what is the dominant strategy in workplaces and academia and sports is actually destroying motivation. Well, it's fascinating, right? Because, we, and, and I, I believe you, you know, I'm a believer in this. I've read the book. Um, why are we still doing this? Like, why do we continue these things, you know, these practices? And I, and I talk about it all the time on the show, you know, HR, we're smart. There's smart people in HR. They're smart. These people, these CEOs, these sales, they're, they're, they're smart people. Yet we continue to go down this route. Why do you, and, and I imagine when you're walking in, talking about these things into, into companies that you're, you're trying to work with or partners or clients, they must look at you and say, you're, you're out of your mind. Like, so what, why do you think we still do this, and, and how are you convincing them to start thinking about these things versus defaulting to, to what we know and, and are comfortable with? 
You, you, Anthony, you're right. They first say that you have to, this doesn't make any sense, right? That, that's like the initial reaction. One of the first things we do is show the science and research in an interactive way, um, making it visceral for people to see what happens to people when we change the motives around them so that people experience that directly and see their own lower performance as a result of changing motives. So we share the science. Um, we educate people on that. Um, and there is, fortunately, there's been some really early adopters that have had the courage to lean into this and get rid of sales incentives for their sales teams. Now, again, the reactions you described, like, oh, my gosh, how can we do this? Why are organizations get, you know, still continuing to do it? One is they, they don't know the science and research behind it. So that's kind of step, step one. Two is for them to feel safe themselves in doing it, um, you know, so that they, they have safety, that they can experiment with it and see improved results as we're getting, getting rid of a sales incentive program. So those are the two things. And helping, part of that is also helping share with them some success stories of other organizations that have started to do this and, and the results that they've seen. So the I, I want to shift. Is, go Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to I want to shift. Is, is this, go ahead. <laughs> you got to go. <laughs> I, who, you want to go, Anthony, or you want me to go? What, what are we doing? You go. We're, we're dancing, and okay. yeah, I'm going to give you the pass. Uh, there you go. You got yeah, the point yeah. guard just gave you the pass. Go. I'm taking the rock. The, the piece I would ask too is the, the the motive around inertia. The most is the most destructive, extrinsic motive. People will stay doing the same thing without good reason for doing it. So that's an important thing just to to think about change. That people will do things even that don't make sense because they're already doing it. So it's helping helping unlock that. So talk a little bit about that, because that, that and, and I was going to go into how you got into working with these folks and obviously, you know, the, the basketball background having an influence. But let's let's hit on that later on. Let's let's talk about that, because I think that is a key piece, not only what you're talking about, but the reason why this change is so difficult. And I'm fascinated, by the way, that you have early adopters. I don't know if you could disclose who those are, but these are people that are getting rid of um, sales incentive plans, which to me, again, yes. is, is an incredible thing that they're doing. So I talk a little bit about inertia as it relates to this and then go into, you know, who those people are, if you can, you know, how did, how did they come around this? Like, how, what are the steps for them to yeah. realize, hey, because I'm imagining day one, they're not getting rid of sales incentives, that it's a, it's a process. Yeah, it is a process. So, um, so a couple things, the, the piece around inertia is, you know, people who are themselves um, low tomo in our language, meaning that they are operating with a lot of emotional pressure, a lot of fear in their work. Um, they're motivated by a lot of rewards and avoiding consequences, economic pressure, or doing the same thing. Um, a lot of people in the workplaces at all different levels, from the C-suite to the front lines, are experiencing a lot of indirect motives themselves. So the, because of the environment that they are in, not because that they're you know bad people or you know, something's wrong with them, just the environment around them is, is judgmental. So it's harder for them to feel safe in taking risk and doing something differently. Um, so if they don't love the work that they're doing, play, seeing the impact of it, it's easy for them to stay stuck and just doing what they did yesterday or a week ago or a year ago without, without really good intention behind it. So inertia is a pretty destructive motive. It, it's why I had this ugly Adirondack chair in my courtyard for two years, Anthony, before I finally moved it two years ago. I knew it was ugly. I knew I should have moved it, but I just kept it there and kept looking at it every single day. No good reason for it. <laughs> uh, 
That's a perfect. By the way, perfect example. And I think you know the HR, uh, the profession of HR has uh, this this level of inertia that exists. Because and any any and I'd say it with love as an HR person, but you know we've done and I pick on performance reviews a lot. We've done performance reviews for years, knowing full well there was no productivity gain whatsoever. It actually had a negative productivity gain. So inertia. You're, you're absolutely right. And I love that you turned sort of the research of what you're doing to help push the research that you're doing and, and, and this methodology. You, you mentioned something about Tomo. Can you talk a little bit, because I know that's the, the big premise of the book, and, and one of the things I love about this idea of Tomo and its, its total motivation um, is that you can score it. Tell me, you know, and, and you, you hit upon play purpose before, and I know those things are, are components of it. T- talk about Tomo for those that don't know, who haven't read the book. By the way, you should read the book. Tell us what, what, what Tomo is all about. Yeah, Tomo's all about really assessing why you're doing anything and measuring that. So, for example, you know, play is when you're doing something just because you love it. So if you think about a hobby that you love or when you're at work, when you're completely in the zone, just loving what you're doing, that's what we mean by play. And it is the most powerful motive you can have for doing anything. Um, the second motive is purpose. Purpose is when you're doing something to see the impact of it. So, for example, I'm loving doing this, this session with you, Anthony, and the folks out there. Um, purpose motive is I hope people are impacted by it and get something out of it. And then the third direct motive is potential when you're doing something to get to somewhere else in your, in your career. So when people are motivated by those things, those things and again, play is not where, about foosball tables or happy hours after work. It's about the activity itself. When you're doing things for those reasons, you're going to be much more successful than someone for, let's say, who's a doctor who's in it just for the money or someone who is fearful and doing something out of fear or they're doing something simply because they did it before. So the indirect motives of emotional pressure, fear and anxiety, FOMO, guilt, blame, shame, economic pressure. You talked earlier, Anthony, about doing things to, for a reward or, a, or to avoid a punishment. That's economic pressure. And then the third Indirect motive is, is inertia when you're doing something simply just because you did it before. Inertia is more destructive than economic pressure, more destructive than emotional pressure. Play is more powerful than purpose, more powerful than potential. So it's about engineering the environment such that people have higher degrees of the direct motives of play, purpose, and potential than the indirect motives of emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. And to bring it back to the, the sales example, like, you know, you, you mentioned people are initially afraid typically to do it. Those early adopters that we've worked with have done it in small pilots. So, for example, we worked with a, a very large, successful branch that has – I'm sorry, bank that has a tremendous culture, right, done, done, doing so many things well, but still realized there was a greater game to be played around performance. So we worked with a subset of the organization and created a pilot where we replaced their sales incentive programs with a skills-based program and compensation. Everyone was made whole, so no one was at risk for losing money. And then we worked on changing the environment around those sales folks to increase their direct motives around learning, experimentation. We broke down a lot of the hierarchies and titles that they had, really gave them space to run it like their own company within a larger institution, and decreased a lot of the kind of blame and shame conversations that we're having, a lot of the pressures that were in place to hit sales targets, um, and as a result, their performance went up. Cross sales went up, productivity went up, and customer experience went up all at the same time. 
and that's from going away from a sales incentive structure and replacing it with a, a different operating model. And that's fascinating because I, I love what you just did there. We we had a prior episode of of uh, New York HR and where we called bullshit on HR metrics. And what you did is you said we did these things and they changed business metrics, right? And it wasn't yeah. only you never mentioned that engagement went up, which I, I'm sure it did. But you said we made these changes and it changed cross sales, it client satisfaction. Yep. I mean, uh, customer client satisfaction. I love that part about you know making sure that we're tying it back to business uh, metrics because that's what business people care about. You know, they do obviously yeah. care about yep. engagement, but how does engagement impact productivity? How do I get more revenue? How do I get more client satisfaction? You, you, you mentioned something before, and, and maybe if you don't mind, double-click on the play component, because there's a misunderstanding, sure. particularly in Silicon Valley, I would even say in some cases in New York, where play is defined as, and I, and I say culture is not a ping-pong table, but it's free food, it's ping-pong tables. Can you dive into that? Because I think, and, you know, and we could probably – uh, we can probably spin that off into a, uh, another show maybe later on this year about, you know, the idea of play in, in organizations. But talk to me a little bit about the definition as you see it in terms of play, because you, you mentioned something about being it, it, the role tied to the role. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it's so many times when people try to solve for quote unquote engagement, you can't improve, you know, engagement unless you make the work engaging. So it's really about having people in roles where they're loving the work that they do. So earlier in my career, I was doing a different type of consulting where I was in, you know, the same environment every day, working with a team of about eight to 10 consultants. And for about a year and a half, all we did was design business process flows. Now, some of you out in the audience may love that, right? You love designing business process flows. Great. That's where you find play. I was miserable doing that. Right. It's all about the, the type of work that you're doing and enjoying it, simply loving the activity itself. Like I'm loving doing this blog. I love doing public speaking. I love doing coaching work. I love working with organizations and teams to help them go from point A to point B and change their environment such that they are more highly motivated and perform at higher levels. It's doing things that you just love about the work itself. I, I I love that and and there's you know the book definitely goes into uh, a deeper conversation on play and how to impact that. So now you're 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 putting these small pilots in. Uh, are you are you measuring this in any way? Like so, as you're thinking about these um, these motivators, these direct and indirect motivators, is I remember reading the book. There's a score involved. Can you talk a little bit about yep. that? Yeah, the, um, so the, you know, we measure, first off, as you mentioned, you know, we do baseline, you know, uh, set the baselines around KPIs um, going, you know, beginning of the engagement. Um, but in terms of measuring TOMO, you know, play is twice as powerful as purpose. Um, purpose gets a lot of airtime um, these days for, you know, having grandiose statements and, you know, what is your, what is your why? But in reality, would you, would you rather have someone who's operating, if you ever need a, unfortunately, a, like a surgery, would you rather have someone operating who is just loves being a surgeon, loves learning about it, wants to master their craft versus someone who's motivated by, some, by something else? So play is the most powerful, more powerful than purpose, um, 2X. So we weight about a 2X difference between play and purpose. And then potential is a, is a subset. It's about I think, two-thirds that of, of purpose, of what potential is. 
the potential again is when you're doing something for a second order outcome. Like let's say you're, you're a teacher, you don't love teaching, which would be play. You don't love the impact on your students, but you're becoming a teacher because you want to be, that's a stepping stone to become a high school superintendent one day. And so then how similarly, are you, so we then, go ahead. You're, you're going into each one of these play purpose and potential. How are you pulling out information? Like how do I, how are you measuring the, the play impact uh, within organizations? Yeah, we, um, it, it, it really comes to a personal level. So, for example, we want to change the – there's multiple ways. You know, you talk about culture, Anthony. I have a, I've had a, um, a hate, love-hate relationship with the word culture, and I love how you're leaning on, you know, metrics and business results. Like, you can get people to do things through using indirect motives. If you apply enough pressure, um, enough carrots and rewards, you can get people to do things, but you won't get – the higher form of performance, the adaptive performance where people are learning to do things better, they're learning the impact on their customers, they're feeling safe experimenting, they're getting the best ideas from their team and from those ideas choosing things to do, do some things differently. You won't get that higher level of performance without the direct motives. So for, you know, when we talk about Tomo, it's about changing the environment around people to maximize the direct motives and reduce the indirect. So it's maximizing people's enjoyment of the work. Now, at the end of the day, if someone is, you know, really, you know, doesn't like coding and they're a software engineer, there's only so much you can do. Right. But it's really about, you know, it's about changing the environment to maximize each person's personal motivation. It, it's funny. I mean, I, I, we can harken back to, um, you know, I hate to admit it, 20 plus years ago. I graduated college with an accounting degree, and I tell the story all the time uh, as we think about, and I love your thoughts on this, on this idea of, of growth conversations and this growth mindset. I know that's another as yep. equally as a hot topic as, as purpose, but um, and 20 years ago, I graduated as an account, accounting major. Uh, I got a degree in accounting. I went into accounting, and I got fired after the first year because I just hated doing it. And it was a major yeah. career change that I shifted into human resources, which I absolutely love. I've been doing it now for almost 20 years. Plus, um, I, I keep saying about 20 years, but it's plus, and I'm going to start admitting that more regularly. But uh, it's, a, it's a big factor. And I guess my, my yeah. question outside of um, uh, the idea of, of, uh, of purpose and, and culture and these buzzwords um, how, literally, like, how are you measuring it through survey? Like, how are you going into a company and, and looking at these things and saying, okay, this is where you stand today and, and this is where you need to go in the future? Are you, are you putting out surveys? How, how are you operating in that, in that manner? Yeah, great question. So we, um, we, we, we have a couple ways. One is we have some free online surveys at our Vega Factor website. So that's one way. Um, we also will do some, like, um, some kind of, diagnostics when people onboard onto our tech platform. That's another way we, we baseline. We also want to make sure that, you know, if we think about the, you know, instead of culture being something nebulous or, or vague, make sure that people understand what, what are the things that create the conditions for you to be motivated around you. So a couple of them are, you know, we talked about, like, Anthony, you not liking being, you know, in accounting, like role design and structure, right? Are, you in, are people in roles where they love the activity? Um, are they able to see the impact of, of their work? Is the organizational identity not just something that looks great on the website and sounds great when people say it, but translates into how people do their day-to-day -day work where they can see the impact that they're having on their, their end user 
and customer and be able to, to learn from it. The talent system, is it something that's low TOMO where it's nine block or competencies or frequent conversations, or is it something where people are motivated to learn? It pays people to learn new skills and then amplify those skills and teach other people, right? So there's a whole host of things, there's a few more, there's a whole host of things that surround us in our operating model that affect people's individual motivation. So I, I, you, you mentioned something before, and, and I like to, I like to say on, on this show that I'm a middle class kid from Brooklyn. Uh, that goes out to, to Maya, by the way. Um, loves when, loves when I say that. You, you mentioned nine block, which is my other favorite thing to reference. Um, so, so t- there's these commonly held BS. practices. Sorry. I'm calling BS on the nine block. All right, let's do it right now because there's commonly held practices. I was with a large company years ago that loved the nine block, um, and now yep. the hottest trend is these frequent conversations. Talk, you know, call BS there. What, what, what's what's yep. wrong with those things, and why is what you're doing a replacement for, for, for those things? Yeah, a couple things. Um, one is, for example, the, the nine block, um, again, for, for many years, a lot of the practices that companies like GE and others like model became the, hey, if GE's doing it, we need to follow it, right? Some terrific folks at GE, but GE did a great job at tactical performance, like, you know, command and control, like, let's figure out the best way to do things. Let's get everyone to do that, you know, very controlling to maximize tactical performance, but they didn't understand adaptive performance, how to engineer for learning in the workplace such that the organization would have higher organizational agility and, and pacing. So with the nine block, what I, what, what's happening time and time again is people are judged in it. It's, it's judgmental. It's biased. People very often get branded in organizations, and they end up in pretty much the same, same block year after year. And when people are seen and judged a certain way in the organization, and this, there's, there's a research in Prime to Form about this where if people are seen as A students or rock stars in organizations, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people are seen as you know, B students or C students, they will perform accordingly based on those judgments. And if you think about it, judgment is the enemy of learning. So a lot of things about the nine block get in the way of motivation and higher performance. Well, the, the good news is, you know, Anthony, you mentioned frequent conversations. Like, more and more HR leaders are realizing that, you know, these ways aren't working. Like they're yucky. They're yucky to have these calibration sessions. It's yucky to judge people. It's yucky to have, like, to tell people where they are in the nine block. It's yucky. It's low tomo. And so they're saying, hey, this is yucky. Let's go to something else. And wait a minute. Feedback is good, right? Feedback, quote, unquote, is a way to learn. Let's move away from a yucky annual process and have frequent coaching conversations over the course of the year. Right, that's, that should feel a lot better, right? And so it's a step away from that. What invariably is starting to happen is people, if people have a bad conversation with their leader once a year, um, how's it going to feel to have 12 of them over the course of the year? Or those conversations get canceled. An organization I know, they've canceled, that they, they're supposed to have the frequent conversations. Invariably, they're not happening. And then what's happening at the end of the year when people need to differentiate people for promotions, or pay or bonus that HR leaders are creating a shadow system that is less transparent than what they had before to differentiate people on, on pay bonus and promotion. 
and it fundamentally is not solving for rapidly rapid skill development and creating an environment for safety and learning and upskilling people as quickly as possible. So two things on that, because, you know, the frequent conversation, I'm even guilty of moving into that on a quarterly basis, pushing people into less, you know, annual conversations where you really can't change the direction of the boat. But to think about, you know, where do you want to go? Not necessarily performing, doing a full performance review, but doing, hey, after the last quarter, it's been it's been great or, you know, you need to work on these things, but where do you want to go into the future? So what's the solve? What are you suggesting? So it sounds like, you know, nine box. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with deleting that frequent conversation. Yep. I'm less comfortable because I feel like it is an improvement over what we've had. What's, what's this, what's your, what's your solution? Yeah. What's you called BS? Yeah, what's the, the solution? Yeah. The, the key is to replace it with a learn to earn model that is skill-based, not competency-based, but skill-based. So break the component, the components down. So let's say in your in, in anyone's role, there are twenty to thirty skills that in that role you're applying on a regular basis. And for each of those twenty thirty skills, you're either learning the skill, fluent in the skill, or you're an expert in the skill and you're teaching it to other people. Give each one of those skills a dollar value on what it's worth, and and, and vary it for learning, fluent, or or teaching it to other people and have very clear descriptions of what it means to be fluent in that skill. So, for example, you know, around, you know, collaborative problem solving, here are the eight very distinct things on what it looks like to be fluent in that skill, such that someone can look at that and objectively say, I'm doing six of those eight. Those other two bullets are things I want to work on. So by changing the game where the locus of control for earnings and skill growth is, is not in the leader's hands. It's not in HR hands. It's in the individual's hands that they're driving their own development because the more they drive it, the more they will pull others to learn. It will be safer to learn, and they're driving their own pace of learning because as they learn more, you're, strip, you're stripping out the bias by having that level of granularity in the skill details, and then people are setting the pace for when they can, can advance and, and make more money. And you're also creating expert tracks where people don't feel the pressure to be promoted or wait, wait till someone leaves the organization or even dies before they can, you know, move up, quote, unquote, up in the organization. Someone can say, hey, I want to be an expert, be the best person in my organization on this, and share my expertise and develop skills in others. They should be valued. That should be valued accordingly. So in, in that, there are conversations, but it's really pull-based from the individual getting advice ideas, not just from their leader, Anthony, but from their peers on the things that the individual, the skills that the individual wants to get better at. You could even make like an athlete, like an athlete saying, to your, hey, I want to improve my, my jump shooting or my, my kicking skills. I'm going to reach out to my peer. Hey, can you spend some time? Give me some advice and ideas on this. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a three-part question. We are, we, we're almost out of time. Um, so first is, are there any companies that are doing what you're talking about now that, you can, that people can look at and go, yeah, they've actually, or they're moving towards it, or they're doing it really well? Yes, is, is the short answer. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're and any, seeing it. Um, and, yes. Any that you can go mention? Ahead. I, I cannot mention names. I can give some characteristics. Um, I mentioned the, the large uh, U.S. bank. Um, we're yep. also working with one of the largest scaling tech companies in the Bay Area right now. 
um, and also implementing it at a, a large pharmaceutical company. Cool. Yeah, good enough for us. Second question is, and this may take a little bit longer, but maybe really quick, where, where, where's the research? Because a lot of people are going to go, you know, you're asking me, these, this is a leap of faith, right? I'm getting rid of sales incentives. I have to think about uh, getting rid of a nine box, which I hold so dear in my heart. Like, what's the research behind this at a top level? Where was this done? Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, a couple of great questions. So a couple of things, um, you, as you mentioned, you can look at climate to perform. You could also go into Harvard Business Review. We have multiple articles, um, including one when our book came out a few years ago, um, around how company culture shapes performance. You can look at that article. It's about a 10-minute read and start getting exposure to our science. Um, the other part, Anthony, you, you mentioned we talked a lot about this you know, kind of sales incentive piece. Well, very often with organizations that, that we partner with or get exposed to this, we would recommend um, typically not starting with that until the organization really understood the science more deeply and had started taking some ground in other areas. Like that's, the, you know, changing your talent system um, overnight is a big shift. So we typically recommend taking some smaller bites first to improve motivation before kind of changing out and supplanting your, your performance management approach. I, I love that suggestion. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I think if you go to Prime to Perform, look at the book, it's it's a great idea or a Vega Factor. Um, so given that information, one more where thing. can people okay, – one more, one more thing I forgot to add, Anthony, and folks out there, is um, also our there's, um, a lot of our research builds on previous research um, that was that is around the self-determination theory, um, pioneered by um, Richard Ryan and Edward D.C., who started it back in the late 60s at the University of Rochester. So if, you really, if people want to really nerd out on this research, um, there's a lot more in the self-determination theory um, textbooks that are out there, and we're cited in it. So if you, people really want to nerd out, go deep, you can, you can check that out as well. Great suggestion, because some, some folks do. Some folks absolutely yep. do. So after all this information, we're, we're, we're calling BS on, on motivating uh, in the traditional fashion. We're talking about TOMO, play purpose potential. How do people get to you, Rich? How do they reach out to you? Where can they find you um, if they're interested in, in uh, talking to you about this stuff? Sure. I appreciate it. The, um, you can reach out to me on, on LinkedIn, Rich Deck, last name, D-E-C. Um, you could also email me at Vegafactor, richard.deck at Vegafactor.com. Awesome. And we also have links in the, in the show description for Rich and, and, of course, the book Prime to Perform and Vegafactor. Really awesome. Thank you for taking the time today, Rich, to, to call bullshit on how companies are motivating their employees. It, this is, it's a mindset change here. It's, it's mind-blowing stuff. Uh, definitely get involved in it. Uh, any last words, anything you want to part with, uh, with uh, the audience, any, any words of wisdom? Not to put pressure on yeah. you, by the way. Yeah, no, put it on, bring it, bring it, Anthony. Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, I, love, I just want to double click in, in closing everybody this whole point around, you know, um, motivation and performance, that when you change the motives around a person to be much more play purpose potential and reduce the indirect motives, you're increasing the capacity for performance. And at the same time, you're solving for all the many things that organizations I'm seeing left and right trying to solve for in a very ad hoc basis around psychological safety, um, agility, diversity, inclusion, fail fast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you think about this as a, an operating common model approach, you solve for performance, you solve for people thriving, 
and all the other conditions that, that probably many of you are working to solve on your own. So I want to just close with that. I love it. I, I gave you, I gave you the, the pass. You're behind the three-point <laughs> line. You knocked it. Game over. Sounds good. Rich, thank you so much for awesome. joining the show today. Everyone, our next episode, we're calling, uh, we're calling Bullshit on Performance Reviews. That's going to be a fun one. Uh, so join us next. Thanks, Rich. You're welcome. Thanks, Anthony. Bye, everyone. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.